This fall, uh, we're stepping back into the lectionary. We finished up our sermon series in Romans uh, last week. And so we are jumping back into the lectionary, that three-year cycle of scripture that many different denominations use to help guide their their sermons throughout uh, the worshiping year. And as we come back to the lectionary, we are jumping into the middle of the book of Matthew, and we're going to be spending some time on the stories that Jesus shared and the lessons that Jesus taught, the life that Jesus lived We do this as the fall continues to lead us into a season of ongoing challenges. We continue to exist in this pandemic that just persists and persists. We are bearing down on yet another contentious presidential election season. Our society is faced with deep unrest as we confront ongoing racial injustices and police brutality. Our local congregation here at SMCC is discerning our future leadership structure in the face of Jeff O'Grady's retirement announcement and the session's recommendation for a co-pastorate. And all of this is happening as ash rains down on us and as the sky glows orange in the places where the Californian sky has any light at all while firefighters battle three of the largest fires in our state's history at the same time. Friends, I don't know about you, but it's tempting to feel like we will be lucky to survive this season. For many of us, we already set our standard of living at survival, Back in March, when the dining table became the schoolroom and the office, and also the place that held the clutter of all of the pieces that fell apart when this pandemic struck. This season just won't quit. Which is why it's really good that we are in the Gospel of Matthew, because as we look at Jesus' life and ministry, we hear stories that once spoke hope to an ancient people who had prioritized survival as their ultimate goal. They lived to make it through each day with their heads down because living was hard, grueling work. And yet, in the context of the ancient Middle East, here came Jesus showing up with Palestinian dust on his feet, telling them that the kingdom of God was near, that he had come to bring life and life to the full and reminding them over and over and over again that they weren't created by God to just survive, but that they were created by God to thrive. And those ancient people, they were created to thrive. And so are you, and so am I. Humanity was created to thrive, not just when the circumstances of our living made thriving inevitable, but particularly when the circumstances of our life and living were stacked against us. We were created to thrive, to experience life to the full, even and particularly when life is impossible to find a leg up in. 
So as we turn to our scripture for this week and in the weeks and in the months to come, I invite you to tune your ears to listen with mine and to ask ourselves where in scripture is Jesus lifting the chin of humanity, lifting our eyes up from looking down at the grind of surviving so that we can connect with the face of the spirit that calls us into a thriving experience. Where do we hear that voice in our scripture today and in the weeks and months to come? Keep that in mind. We're going to turn to Matthew 18 verses 12 through 35. It says, Then Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold together with his wife and children and all of his possessions and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he, he said, pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused. And he went out and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Friends, we better pray. Please join me. God, we hear your word speaking to our hearts. And sometimes it sounds like good news, but maybe today we're not so sure. So please speak through me that even though I am imperfect and mess stuff up, may your good news still be heard. And please speak through our hearts and our ability to listen that we will tune out the things that do not ring true to your scripture, but that we will focus on the things that our spirit confirms as us in us to be true. May it be less of us and more of you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
So the subject of forgiveness is really not a simple subject for any of us to talk about. In large part because we are taught a lot of lessons about how forgiveness works from the time that we are very young. And as we get older, those lessons that we once learned start to get muddled. They start to sound contradictory. There's this old preacher joke out there. It goes like this. When I was younger, I used to pray every night for a bicycle. But then I learned that God doesn't work like that. So I stole a bike and then asked for forgiveness. It's a cheesy sort of joke, I know. But it proves my point. When it comes to forgiveness, does God want us to keep ourselves out of the position of ever having to ask for forgiveness, like forgiveness is somehow limited? Or is forgiveness so free-flowing that it covers over every failing, so we maybe don't have to be so careful? What is the right way to think about forgiveness? How does forgiveness work? I, uh, when my children were particularly young, we taught them to go through three steps of an apology. Say what you're sorry for, say what you're going to do differently, and then ask for forgiveness. To which the expectation has always been that once amends are made, the other child would agree to forgive. Now, I will give you two hands and 10 fingers to count how often over the last decade that process has been carried out with authenticity and humility by both children at the same time, but I promise you will have fingers left over. As Eric Barreto from Princeton Seminary says, ask a child to apologize, to admit his or her wrongdoing, and you will discover the early limits of human empathy. He goes on to say that asking for forgiveness is an act of humility and yet perhaps equally as challenging as asking for forgiveness is granting forgiveness. After all, granting forgiveness heals relationships by requiring us to let go, to turn the page, to refuse the right to hold on to bitterness and anger. In other words, while it's very humbling for us to admit that we were wrong and to ask someone to forgive us, it can be equally as humbling to release that sense of control that we sometimes feel over a person who has wronged us. It's sometimes equally as humbling to forgive. Friends, there are so many factors that play into this when it comes to asking for forgiveness and then forgiving others. We have these simplified childhood lessons. We have the lessons of scripture. We have demonstrations of people in our life, some who maybe do not forgive so well. And all of that clashes with these convoluted feelings we have of pride and reason and grace. So when it comes down to it, what does Jesus want us to know about forgiveness? How does forgiveness work according to God? There are two main points about forgiveness illustrated in Jesus' story that's told in scripture today. The first one that I want to touch on is this. Forgiveness is both an extravagant and a precious thing. It is intended to be both generous and valuable. 
And I highlight this because it can be really hard for us to grasp in, a, in our culture today, the idea that something can be extravagant and also precious. We in our society today are so deeply shaped by a culture of consume and waste and consume and waste, where what is precious is determined by its limits and what is extravagant or abundant is seen as less valuable. We have been conditioned to believe that something can only be precious if it is so limited that it has to be used in moderation. It's very few things that we can think of in our lives that are both extravagant, abundant, and precious. Forgiveness isn't either extravagant or precious, it is intended to be both because forgiveness is not intended to be used in moderation, but forgiveness will save your life. We see this illustrated in the story. When Jesus is telling us about the king and the slave, he sets it up with these huge hyperboles, right? He's exaggerating at every single turn. And he's doing this to make his point very obvious and clear. He says that the slave owes the king 10,000 talents. What that is, is 60 million days of work. 60 million days wages. The amount that this slave owes to the king, it exceeds the national debt of a small country. No one person could ever repay this. Even if they were to sell themselves and their family into servitude for several lifetimes. The number is read out in the story and the servant falls on the floor begs for more time to pay back this ridiculous debt, for more time to pay back these numbers that honestly, the slave would have no ability to fathom. He's asking the king for patience when he should be asking the king for forgiveness. But even though the slave could not fathom those numbers, the king could. The king could comprehend that amount of money. And even though the king was asked for patience and not for forgiveness, he offers forgiveness instead. The scripture doesn't say why the king chooses to do this, but I like to think that it was easier for the king to forgive the debt as a whole than it would have been for the king to try and educate and reason with a slave who could never understand how much debt he owed. The forgiveness of the king was extravagant. It doesn't take a lot of analysis of the scripture for us to see that. And the forgiveness of the king was also proved to be precious because it saved every aspect of that slave's life from his possessions to his family to his very self. Forgiveness is extravagant and precious. It doesn't cover a limited, moderated amount It covers whatever is needed to be covered in order to restore that precious freedom to the life of the debtor. So forgiveness is extravagant and precious. The second point that I really want to touch on from this story, I really think that Jesus wants us to know that forgiveness is also reciprocal and reliant. Now, no one, in our culture today, 
in our country, in our space, likes to think much about anything, about anything in our lives as being reciprocal or likes to think about anything in our lives as being reliant upon others, not in terms of forgiveness and not in terms of really much anything else. We don't like to think about our being, our actions being reciprocal or us being reliant on others because we live in a hyper-individualistic society that asserts that what I do or what I receive affects me and me alone. Many of us are taught to believe that whatever I do and whatever I get, it has nothing to do with you. It's a very different culture than the world that Jesus occupied, which was highly communal. And I want to say it's a very different culture to even cultures that exist in the United States, let alone around the world. This is not a universal thing. This hyper-individualistic culture is different from the world of Jesus, but it's also very different from the values of the kingdom of God. It's very different from the values that Jesus is trying to highlight through telling parables like these. The hyper-individualism that many of us value so highly today is one of our biggest barriers. It's one of the biggest obstacles we have in experiencing the kingdom of heaven to the fullest extent. And if you don't believe me that that individualism is one of the biggest barriers we have to experiencing heaven, then all you have to do is keep on reading in our story today. Because there's only one guy in the story who behaves as though he's connected to nobody. And Jesus tells the story with such hyperbole that there's no mistaking about how foolish this man is by thinking this way. Of course, this man is the forgiven slave. It's the man who was forgiven a debt so large that it was beyond his ability to comprehend it. He asks for patience. He ends up receiving forgiveness, but he walks out that door with not so much as a thank you. It's almost like he thinks he deserved it or like he earned it maybe somehow by being such a good actor in his begging on the floor for pity. The forgiven slave no more than clears the threshold of the king's palace when he comes upon a guy who owed him 100 days wages. 100 days wages, fully payable. But instead of allowing him an opportunity to pay that back, this forgiven slave grabs the man by the throat and throws him into prison until the man can pay him back. This slave operates in about as hyper-individualistic a way as anyone in the Bible can. There's no treat others as you wish to be treated. There's no pay forward the good things that you get. Apparently, in his mind, he sees no connection between his receiving forgiveness and his needing to forgive somebody else. It's really interesting because even though he thinks that he's alone, even though he thinks that his actions are completely disconnected from everybody else, he gets turned back into the king because of the community that is watching him. He wanted to be disconnected, but he could not be disconnected from the consequences of his actions because his actions were reciprocal and his actions are reliant on the community that he exists in. 
So friends, I think that that is what Jesus is trying to teach us about forgiveness too. Any belief that we might hold that our actions are not reciprocal or that we are not reliant on the people around us is a myth. And forgiveness is the absolute same. I just want to point out that this is not the first time that Jesus talks about this. For those of us who've grown up in the church or, and, and who have said the Lord's Prayer every single Sunday, we have said those words that Jesus taught us to say, forgive us as we forgive those who sinned against us. Forgive our debts as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Forgiveness is extravagant and precious. It's not limited. It is 100% aimed at restoring the freedom and the precious life of the people around us. And forgiveness is reciprocal and reliant. It's not something that we do in a hyper-individualistic way. In order to forgive, we have to recognize how deeply connected we are to the people who are around us, connected by our words, our actions, our thoughts. The question that I am left with, I mean, it's really great to know what, how forgiveness works in the eyes of Jesus. Grateful for that. But how do we do this? I just want to leave you with a story. Several years ago, when I started in ministry, I encountered some people, some colleagues who were just corrupt, toxic. And it ruined a part of me. I just felt completely beaten down. I felt completely pushed into terrible situations. I felt like I didn't understand why God would call me to serve in ministry if I had to work alongside people like that. It, it just, it, it marked me. And uh, several years after this happened, I was talking to a, a an acquaintance of mine, someone that I really respect, pastor of a large church in the Pacific Northwest. And I was saying to him, you know what? I have thought about this. I have tried to forgive. I have forgiven over and over again, but it just keeps on coming back up. I don't know how to forgive these people and I don't know how to forgive God. It just so happens that my friend that I was talking to, he's written several books on the Rwandan genocide. And he listened to me gripe for a while. And he said, you know, yep, these are terrible things. And he said, you know, but if the people of Rwanda can forgive each other after those massacres, then I have a feeling that the same spirit that enabled them to forgive can enable you to forgive too. We can't forgive alone. We need the spirit of God to help us. It's crazy that Jesus uses all of these hyperboles, right? In like 10,000 galleons and 10,000 galleons. I think that's Harry Potter. 10,000 talents and all of this money. And says, oh, well, then he was thrown into be tortured and, you know, never be heard of again. 
Jesus uses this hyperbole to talk about the debts that were owed that nobody could cover. But my friends, it's, the, it's not lost on us that Jesus really did cover over an uncountable amount of sin. That same spirit that empowered Jesus, that led Jesus through death back into life is the same spirit that is with each and every one of us, that exists with us, that will help save our lives from bitterness and anger and will help save the lives of the people who so desperately need to be forgiven. Friends, whoever it is that you need to forgive this week or whoever it is that needs to forgive you, you can do this. We can do this together. Let's just do it. Amen.